Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to have Paul Constant as my guest today. Paul, whose real name is Phil, had a deep awakening in 2007, which he describes as the experience of nothingness. But his experience didn't end there. We'll talk about that and more in this interview with Paul Constant. All right. Well, thank you, Phil, for joining me this morning. I appreciate your time with this. And uh, I just wanted to, to point out to whoever might be listening that they may be more familiar with you uh, under the name Paul Constant, as that's what you often write under and are advertised under on the web. Uh, so just, uh, just to start off, I'm curious if you can explain to folks why you chose to use a pseudonym rather than your actual name. Ah. It's an interesting question. Um, I think it goes back oh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe not quite that long, where I just felt like with the internet being so easy to see see folks and track folks down, I just felt more comfort with me and my family just being a bit more private with it. And uh, I think it also, at that time, I was thinking about finding a different job and so I didn't want potential employers Googling my name and thinking I was out there on a limb somewhere. So it just felt more comfortable to be private and take up the name Paul Constant. And that was, uh, it's an interesting, the way it was, came about. I, I think I was exchanging, oh, I know, I was posting something for a tap forum article and I told Art Tickner, who at the time was a forum editor, said, I don't really want to put my real name out there. And he's the guy that actually came up with Paul Constant, which uh, <laughs> I think fits my personality because I just have this steady state personality that doesn't change a lot. And uh, so therefore, Constant must have been the thing that rang a bell for him as a, a pseudonym. So soon as he said it, I said, that's perfect. Let's just go with that. And that's where it took off from there. Gotcha. Okay. Well, is there a, uh, just to begin at the beginning, is there a point in time that you would say that your spiritual search began? Yeah, I think in my late teens, uh, I was reading, I started to read some books. I was going to uh, um Penn State at the time, a branch campus, and I got into, I think it was Krishnamurti at the time, uh, what I would just call light spiritual reading, and uh, I became very fascinated with it. So I was probably 18, 19 at that time, and at some point, I went to the main campus, which at that time, before the internet, had... Uh, a huge library of books and I think my first what I would call serious book was Uspensky. I was in an art class in fact in in uh, my curriculum so it must have been maybe my third year in college and the art teacher was talking about 
Waking Sleep. And he mentioned Uspensky's In Search of the Miraculous. And he just said it in the middle of the class. If you ever want to read an interesting book, get this. And uh, so I went down after the class was over and said, what's the name of that book and the author? And sure enough, it was there in the library. And uh, I would say that was, I was hooked at that point when I started reading about the potential of spiritual work and uh, got hooked into one of his students, uh, Uspensky, and read The Fourth Way. And that that's also was very, very much in line with my highly intellectual approach at that time to spiritual work. I was all pretty much in my head. Um, so that book really appealed to me. And then uh, I'd say later on, I was perusing books. I think at the time it was B. Dalton and Walden bookstores were popular in malls and I was in the Pittsburgh area. I opened a book, can't remember which one it was, but um, at that time uh, Richard Rose and uh, the Tapp Foundation had an approach which included these maybe three inch by three inch pieces of paper, we used to call them stuffers, that advertised books that um, uh, that were Richard Rose's books, and I remember reading a short description about the Albigen Papers, and it was it was on that stuffer. So I had picked up a book, took it home, saw that stuffer in it, and thought, oh, that's intriguing. Um, interestingly enough, I think I set it aside and lost it. And I remember six months or so later, where is that piece of paper? That sounded like a really intriguing book. And uh, I found it, ordered the Albigen papers, and then that's when things really started to take off from there. Now, you mentioned Krishnamurti, right? Yes. What, uh, I mean, for a college student, I mean, why in the world were you drawn to something like that was what got why did you pick up that book what were you looking for I remember the book was think on these things um, I would say I've always been drawn to the mystical side the magical side of the spiritual approach and um, I know if I were to put seekers into two camps Generally, there's the camp that is just captivated by the mystery and they're pulled towards the search for reality or search for truth. Um, and then the other camp, which is probably more common, are those that are repulsed by life, so to speak. Just they're suffering. They don't like what they see in life. And so, you know, they're, they're looking for escape from something they don't care for. So I think I think with think on these things, it wasn't heavy stuff. It was just the way he was talking that captivated me. It was just like the the mystery behind life. What is the mystery of life? And it just kind of uh, really it was just like gravity just pulled me right into it. So you were already a attracted to those questions but hadn't come across any material or someone or you just randomly came upon this book and were curious about the title 
I think if there was a kind of a mini stage before that book, I was always interested in like the potential uh, magic of the mind. So I would read stuff uh, like table tilting, uh, psychic phenomena. I remember one time um, I watched a guy bend a key in front of me repeatedly. And I was just absolutely convinced that he was doing it with his mind. I, I really don't think he was, but I was just totally pulled into the potential qualities of the mind that every day in everyday life we don't use or don't see. So that was a door opener for me. I'm pretty convinced that that was like the uh, you know psychic phenomena can be a pretty interesting doorway for people into something deep deeper and that's definitely what it was for me that uh, led me to that book and then that book was just like a deeper level to me it wasn't talking about uh, what you you know all the mundane things you can do with your mind it was something there must have been something about the words that really struck my intuition there's a lot more going on behind life than we're really paying attention to. Is this um, at the time that you were interested in the psychic phenomenon and so forth, is this something that your family had an interest in or that your parents first exposed you to? And if not, what did they think about all that? <laughs> well, uh, I was raised a Catholic um, up until... I think my first Holy Communion, my mom, you know, insisted that I go through the Catholic school and go to church every Sunday. And uh, I remember thinking, even as a child, like some serious questions about what what really is God? What's the difference between God and Jesus? And uh, the it was a little interesting to me, but it was also extremely boring. And so after my, after like eighth grade in, in school, um, my mom pretty much gave up. So she got me to the point where she said, okay, I've given you a deep taste of the Catholic Church, but from, from here on, you know, I'm not going to drag you to church. And uh, I was so bored with it, I didn't go. Um, so other than that, my family was not interested in anything deeper uh, except, you know, the... Um, basic religion, a basic religious approach. Um, but I think what I would say I'm just really grateful for is my family was very wholesome. Uh, my parents, you know, now that I'm 53 years old and I talk to a lot of the people and see what's going on around me, uh, I think probably my parents were more unique and just they were, you know, they had it together they gave me a, a decent middle-class life, kept my nose clean. Uh, but, I, you know, in the, when it comes to talking with uh, my family, my mom died in 1994. So I was, uh, you know, I was in my early 30s at that point. I never really broached a subject with her. And my dad, to a little bit, he knows kind of what I'm into but I really don't go into it too deeply because I just he's just not interested and I don't want to try to convince him of one thing or another or just explain what I'm doing 
So family was not a big part of the encouragement, but certainly gave me great space, you know, a great space to explore. And that probably ties into what I said before about I wasn't suffering in life because I had a great childhood and so it wasn't the suffering that pushed me into the spiritual path. It was more the mystery of it. Well, let's uh, let's fast forward then a little bit. You mentioned Richard Rose already that you came came upon him. Uh, what what would you say was the the difference between uh, meeting meeting Rose, encountering Rose, and what you had done up to that point? Um, I remember reading through all of his books very rapidly. Like within a year, I'd read five books. Um, and I remember when I called him, the thing that caught my attention was as soon as I called and mentioned my name, he said, oh, you know, you're so-and-so. And he recognized me. And so that made it uh, kind of special. You know, I was expecting this to be a large organization and a teacher being kind of lofty. Um, so he invited me up to his farm in West Virginia at that point. And uh, the timing, part part of why I called was I, you know, basically had said, I feel like I don't know what to do now. You know, I'm really captivated by the books, but it just feels like I need to meet people and do something along these lines. And he had what he called an, um, Chautauquas, and specifically in August, it was for people that were interested in his system of teaching. So he called it the August Chautauqua that he would have every year. And that's in contrast to tapped foundation meetings, which were more open, more general, um, not specific to his teachings. Um, so he invited me, like within two weeks, he said, we have a meeting coming up in two weeks, and it's the August Chautauqua, and when I stepped on the farm, um, you know, I, I was very introverted at that time, so this was a huge thing for me to leave my comfort and go on to a group that I didn't know anybody, didn't, didn't really feel that comfortable with, but... Um, I think to answer your question, what I would say is I felt the impact of sitting there listening to him. It was very, I, I remember that first time I walked on the farm and within uh, listening to him for a few hours and walking from the place where we were meeting the Chautauqua building down to the farmhouse, it literally felt like I was floating, you know, because um, I was just so inspired by what I heard. So the books inspired me to some degree, but there was something more palpable um, to a group setting and certainly more palpable listening to him directly. It really just inspired me, yeah, to, to a great degree. Like I felt it, felt it in me. And what did... Uh... What did that inspiration, what sort of action resulted from meeting Rose? How did your life change? Wow. Um, 
I think when I met him, I was 21 or 22. And so I was just graduating from college. Um, didn't know where I was going in life at that point, of course, like most students. Um, so the world was open to me at that point. I remember, I, I think what, what he did for me was gave me hope that this was this was possible for other people you know I saw it in him um, and looking back I, I can see he compared to some of the many of the teachers you see out there he was very ordinary you know he would joke about being a hillbilly himself so there was nothing there was nothing about him that was well yeah it's hard to describe he was extraordinary in his determination for one thing so that showed in me the potential that if I applied myself um, in a certain direction that could change my life and as I said the world was open so I chose this uh, this line of thinking this this pursuit that point in tandem with my career and whatnot but this was always super important to me um, and it has been for the last 30 some years um, yeah I think he just showed that it was possible for the ordinary person that I didn't need to travel across the world overseas to see some guru um, to pursue this further there it was it was something I could do myself Well, how would you, let's say in your 20s, can you characterize your life at that time? Were you, uh, you know, standing on your head every morning and taking ice baths and, you know, <laughs> what what was your life like? You, you mentioned that you had to go to work, so you had a job throughout that time. Uh, were you Were you just a typical guy most of the time? Uh, I think most people would probably say yes I was very typical um, I didn't I wasn't a very open person so I didn't talk about my spiritual life very much I was very private I guess that's carried through with my pseudonym as well I was very private at that time um, so I would say most people would look at me as very ordinary you know in my college days and whatnot my social life just probably was pretty ordinary go out to bars and party with people but I'm um, not get too carried away with it so I, ne I never been one for extremes so when you mention like standing on your head or doing odd spiritual practices I don't think I engage too much in that but I think my expression of applying the energy would have been at that time Rose wasn't too far away, so I would go out between TAP meetings and visit him, work with some of the his students who lived on the farm, and I learned a lot. Amazingly, when I first went to see him, I didn't want anything to do with other, other than the students because I didn't really think they had anything to offer, and a lot of them became my best friends. Um, and so that was, that was a, a lesson learned in, in my... 20s the value of spiritual friendship um, 
I think my my practice would have been characterized by introspection. I was I was constantly watching my mind and I would pretty much make a commitment to go for a walk every day and just stop all the other stuff in my life and just say, okay, I'm taking a 30 minute or 60 minute break. I'm going to go for a walk and watch my mind and see what I can learn about myself, what makes me tick. So I would say, you know, just uh, continuing to read books, doing a bit of that walking meditation, visiting rows. Um, and that, that would have been the early part of the search. It was all take, by the way. You know, I was always seeking to extract as much as I could. So it was all, it was in a way a bit selfish in that I was trying to get as much as I could and didn't really at that point see the value of giving, um, giving back in a, in a way that later proved to be extremely rewarding on, in this endeavor. Uh, did you reach a point where you felt like you had plateaued or a point where you just felt like giving up? I did. I shifted. I definitely shifted my efforts. Um, so I met Rose in 1985, and then in 1995 he had faded from the scene um, due to his Alzheimer's and wasn't really accessible anymore. Had been uh, moved into a nursing home, and I remember that was a huge transition because a lot of people were saying the Tat Foundation can't survive without its founder and teacher main teacher and uh, a couple of us you being one um, really got our heads together and tried to keep things moving and and things had really dwindled at that point um, to some of the meetings had six people in them which i thought yeah you know that time i i was dating uh cindy who would be my wife eventually but uh, she came to a gathering and said she just she didn't tell me until later, but said, this is totally hopeless. You know, you have six people sitting around trying to make this a go at it. Um, so I shifted my efforts at that point to figuring out how to carry this message to other people. Uh, but then I would say uh, part of there was a huge bump in inspiration where folks started to have realizations, some of Rose's students that I've known a while and that really gave me hope that this was also possible that this wasn't you know some all about rose that now this was accessible to people like me who were students so i got a nice bump in inspiration but at some point i re i actually concluded this wasn't going to happen for me so you know it felt like i tried everything it felt like i failed at a bunch of stuff and it just wasn't I could see the effect on me, but it didn't feel like I could make a final leap. So yes, at some point I totally gave up, and I remember even commenting, well, I'll just shift my efforts into trying to make TAT available and this message available to other people, and uh, that was kind of a way I, in retrospect, kept my head on the problem. It kept it there in my face even though I was helping other people and just had given up on myself, 
it was sort of a constant reminder of the search for truth. But why didn't, uh, you know, I've known some people who, <clears throat> excuse me, who seemingly, when they give up, they're gone. They're out of there. They, they, their life changes completely. Why, why didn't that happen with you? Why did you, in, instead, it sounds like you decided to, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep working at this, but by helping other people. You know, people, people are often on a spiritual path because they want to get to the end of the path and get this huge reward at the end of that path. But I saw the value and the beauty all along the path. I mean, it, it, it just, I think I was, well, I know I was hugely grateful at that time and that gratitude just continued to magnify as I live my life, but um, I could see the returns. Not that I was really in it for that. You know, I wasn't in it for like to improve myself. At some point I realized it's a self-improvement project. This wasn't what it was about, but I could see the change in myself. So, and I could, I could see the, the, the friendships that have been forged over you know, all those years, and yeah, it, 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 this might be an overstatement, but I think it was fun, you know, I just saw a lot of cool things happen over the years, saw other people realized um, to great depths, and uh, I just don't think I could ever walk away, I mean, it's just, the mystery of reality is just uh, too captivating for me to walk away from it. You mentioned the message earlier and and helping to continue the message of the Tat Foundation. How would you summarize that message? Well, uh, I think friendship to me is the key one of the key points in uh, the Tat Foundation. So and by that I mean you know there's there's a lot of well that's there's a lot of teachers out there who have what I call a hierarchical approach and meaning they'll say I have this and you don't where the friendship approach in the tap foundation is more or less it's it's equalized I mean you I feel like every I could walk into a tap meeting and see a bunch of people sitting down over a lunch or dinner and you can't tell the teachers from the stu- from the people there who are seeking. Um, and so one of the things um, I like about it is that, that those who have found are easily accessible. They are friends. They don't convey um, this aloofness or loftiness, they don't, um, to, to my uh, knowledge, for any anybody in TAT, they don't charge a fee, never have charged a fee for what they're giving, which is, a, by the way, a very genius um, principle that Rose instilled. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of debates about what to charge and whether to charge for teachings, but um, I can see where money muddles things quite a bit. 
it doesn't it doesn't say that if somebody teaches and charges that they're not enlightened you know it's not that exclusive but i i do see how it complicates things dramatically when there's steep charges to um, what's freely accessible to all essentially so yeah, that that was another principle that I, I liked about TAP. It was not excluding people that couldn't afford it. Um, and it doesn't, uh, it just doesn't have what I would call like a, a core dogma. There's not, nobody saying you must do A, B, C in order to get realized. Um, so it leaves it open to people applying their own energy and their own unique body, mind, makeup, whatever approach resonates with them. And I guess lastly, what's really cool about it nowadays is you have several finders who all came at this from different angles, who all work together pretty well, despite the fact that we had different recommendations even different approaches just because of the way we all came into it so now we we're on the other side so to speak we're we're teaching in a way that feels authentic to, to each person and uh, which is great then you got a wide much wider uh, approach for those listening you know they can resonate with a certain teacher um, if it feels right to them instead of just having to come and listen to one teacher or with a pretty, you know, narrow approach, so to speak. Well, let's talk about finding. That's something that people are always curious about in these interviews. At some point, uh, and perhaps at more than one point, uh, something happened for you, something you did discover something. Can you share a little about that? Yeah, I, I think it's a... Uh, it might be a biased opinion, but I think it's a pretty cool message for people looking for this. Um, and what's cool about it is it happened in stages. And so I think what, what tends to happen with a lot of seekers, they feel like they're going to apply themselves and then this will change them all at once. In, in a very fundamental way. Um, you know, in a classic example of that might be Ramana Maharshi, where just, you know, there was this huge change at 16 years old, which is, I think, way out there in a very unique um, finding, a very unique realization. Uh, but in my case, uh, as I said to you, in 2000, mid-2000s, I had given up. And I was still, I, I was still meditating and my form of meditation was to sit down and try to keep my mind in a neutral area. In other words, if my thoughts drifted, I would try to come back to what I would call center, you know, just a, a neutral place of watching. So I knew that I was aware. I knew... That was a fundamental quality within myself that could watch my mind, could watch thoughts and feelings, but I, I couldn't quite figure out where that awareness was. And that was 
my question what is the source of my awareness so um, I remember going out to the TATS community building at the time which was uh, you know a lot of people had invested efforts into that building and I always say that building was a physical manifestation of friendship because so many people had worked on it over the years so I went out there to spend a weekend by myself which um, just gave me some quiet time to sit and I actually decided to sit and meditate and I you know I don't feel like I feel like this is Providence that stepped in at that point I don't really feel like I made anything happen but I got very determined to watch my mind um, and I saw a lot of things start to happen with the more and more I almost got angry at the fact that I couldn't keep my mind on center and I almost saw like this great tension developing in this watching process and this probably occurred over 30 minutes I don't I don't know I sort of last lost track of time in it but this thing ratcheted up to such an intense degree that I felt like this electricity outside of me that flooded in at, at some point and and everything of me was stripped away so it was it was in retrospect uh, a death a, a brief death of the mind in which I dissolved into my true nature uh, and it was it was what I would call uh, becoming nothingness so I became fundamentally what I am without the mind so to speak uh, well it just that, that's probably the best way of describing it that it was empty I emptied myself out into emptiness nothingness the one however you want to call it I called it an experience of one awareness in retrospect when I wrote something about it and there were a couple of interesting things that happened after that which I knew at the time were kind of uh, implanted just just to make sure that I understood the depth of this that I remembered it and I remember having my head blown off it was truly a feeling I, I hadn't read anything of Douglas Harding but when he talks about headlessness it was truly like my head had blown off and I was the universe on top and my body was dropping out of this nothingness I remember feeling this distinct uh, sense of I am hollow man like I was a hollowed out character and then at the end of that I, I, I there wasn't any emotion with this it was just like I this whole process it wasn't a deeply emotional thing I wasn't sad or anything but I remember putting my face in my hands and knowing unequivocally that I kept saying over and over, I do not exist. So I knew that that was beyond uh, debate. But the funny thing is, and this is where I, I say it's kind of a cool experience because if there are other people out there that have these things happen, they know there's a potential for more, more to happen. So right after that, my mind said, 
uh, you know, it started, it basically filled the vacuum of nothingness and came back and said, you know, this isn't, this isn't authentic. This isn't the end. There's, this isn't what happened to some, the same thing that happened to some of the other people um, that were realized in tap because I made the mistake of going back to the cabin where I was staying and reading their descriptions of their realizations and saying, no, that didn't happen to me. That didn't happen to me. Um, and the, the big part of this was the fact that everything I had been looking for, you know, my question was, what is the source of awareness? was so simple and obvious to me that I said, this can't be it. It was like the awareness was no longer personal and now it was always present. You know, it wasn't like this kind of a, it wasn't like the spotlight shining on the mind or, or thoughts and feelings. It was like, it was everywhere. It was in my face. So everything I had been looking for, I was looking out of, so to speak. And uh, that simplicity could not be accepted because I'd spent 22 years and this was the answer and it just was almost laughable. <laughs> but uh, so that was a resting place for a couple of years. I was really, really trying to make sense of it. Where does this thing fit in with what other people have realized and I talk with other teachers about it and uh, interestingly enough none of them ever gave me I felt like none of them were ever mature enough I'm talking about teachers outside of TAT um, were mature enough to really put this into context um, so a couple of years later I think it was about five years later I uh, had I ran into another teacher who was very Shakti oriented, you know, and I didn't really. That's the energy that that can sometimes manifest in a group of people. And certain teachers, I feel, um, in a way, get distracted by it, but they also manifest it. But that teacher awakened in me. I even felt it when I was sitting. Uh, my it, it awake she awakened my heart and it, it went from this very intellectual approach to, to seeking even though I had this deep awakening uh, to begin with to bringing it into my heart and I just fell so deeply in love with the teacher and I you know to put this into context I was the tin man in the Wizard of Oz I mean, I had no heart. I couldn't even tell my wife, I love you. So that's how dry, you know, and just, you know, I'm, I was a sensitive person, but it just wasn't a loving, embracing kind of guy. But uh, that teacher woke up my heart. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, that lasted about two years. Um, but it, it was really, really evident to me that it was time to move on. 
and I was resisting leaving that teacher, which was another great lesson in this whole spiritual seeking process. You know, we get messages in life with our relationships with other people, our, you know, children, spouses, teachers, jobs. And uh, it was evident to me that I was getting stronger and stronger messages and I kept resisting leaving this teacher. And finally, the message was so strong that I knew I was done, I was finished, and uh, I had to move on. And so the gifts were all given, the basket, the gift basket was empty for that teacher and I'm grateful. You know, I'm grateful for everything she did and all that happened. But it wasn't all rosy. I will say there was there were certain things that still, uh, in retrospect, kind of left some wounds that would take time to heal. So you know, people always think about seeking as some. You know, some people are lopsided into all agony. You know, and some people think, oh, this is going to be all about pleasantries, but uh, it never seems to be one or the other. Uh, so that that teacher opened my heart, and um, there was a, just a, a final teacher who sort of, I went, I, I went to a retreat, a silent retreat, and I went because I got a scholarship, and it, I wouldn't have gone because the retreats are really expensive. But there was something about the teacher who was very rose-like. You know, he told stories that were funny. You know, I remember sitting around Rose in tears crying because I was laughing so hard. And this teacher also was kind of put me at ease with his storytelling. But what I would say, in essence, that he did, I had such deep beliefs that were created by the first two teachers who had strong personalities about what enlightenment should be, that this teacher systematically, and not to me, I mean, there were 300 people in this retreat, but for me, I was loving the whole retreat and it just systematically undercut every concept that I had deeply embedded in me about what enlightenment was. And so, the last thing, and I, I recognized that when it was happening, it wasn't like this grand event. You know, a lot of us are waiting in spiritual circles for what, what I call the grand mall enlightenment. You know, it's going to be this huge cataclysmic thing that happens. But I realized um, very softly that self-doubt was deeply embedded in me. And so what I had seen in the awakening in 2007 was uh, I what I describe is I came back home so in 2007 you know I was exposed to my true nature in a very fundamental way and I went off like a teenager seeking more not accepting what was staring me in the face and that familiar awareness that would still sort of come and go. But uh, at the end of this retreat, I knew when the self-doubt went about that, what was always here never left me like a lover. 
um, it just stuck. I, I, or I just settled into it or my mind could no longer deceive me. My thoughts about what enlightenment was, all these grand ideas and concepts that we build, um, they all fell away. I mean, it's not like there's there's still stuff there. You know, a good analogy is like a splinter in a finger. You know, there's old patterns and thoughts and things that, that still have to work their way out. You know, it's like a splinter that has to work its way out of the skin over time. So I guess what I would describe that whole thing happening is I became everything at that point. And uh, so I became nothing. I fell in love. I became love. I lost my fear of love. Um, I lost my fear of death in the original awakening because I realized that what I am cannot die. Um, and maybe a way of flipping this is I accepted love. I accepted death. And the last thing was, you know, I had this fear of, or aversion, maybe is a better word, to small s self and all these little quirks and things that I was seeing in myself over the last couple of years. And I finally realized that's just self doing its own thing. And by accepting it more, and even this self-doubt is a is something generated by the self you know it's trying to sustain itself with self-doubt um, and accepting all that stuff the fear of self or yeah the aversion of self fell away and that's kind of what I'm alluding to in the way of everythingness it's like the true nature merges with everything including what's happening now all the time uh, the re in the relative you know there's the opposite of the absolute although the absolute <laughs> you know it gets hard to describe this to me that the absolute is sort of has this side of oneness emptiness nothingness but it also has a flip side of the same coin which is it contains everything relative um, and the relative includes this smallest self um, and the world, the entire world. So I guess the message I, I would like to say is, you know, that's a story, certainly very unique to me. And it, this stuff, I remember hearing other people's realizations. Um, the best thing they could, those did for me was inspire me. You know, it made it possible. They kept me going. They intrigued me. Um, they mystified me. But that story is so unique to me that it's really, really uh, not good, I would say, for other people to try to duplicate it or try to grasp, you know, every word that I said. Maybe things would happen in the reverse. You know, somebody could open to love. Somebody could be open to everythingness first I, I don't know there's certainly different things for different people wired different ways but uh, yeah so it doesn't all happen to happen at once that's the other thing 
that I'd like to get across that you know this stuff just can take time and uh, if there's anything I would say a benefit or value to seeking is that it lays a great groundwork you know people want to get to the end of the path as quickly as they can but this in my life what I've seen is this seeking laid a foundation a great great like structure that once I realized truly that I don't exist it wasn't shocking you know it wasn't like something that would put me in a nut house you know it was when I when I realized that it was all taken away then that seeking had left a nice firm place to grab onto and uh, yeah that's kind of it in a nutshell In regards to the question, is there an end to the spiritual path? How would you answer that? <laughs> the short answer to your question is no. I don't believe there's an end. There is a part. There's a uh, a part where a person. You know, I th my message is nowadays. Uh, this is in contrast to my seeking days early on where I pushed hard. Nowadays, my message is to just simplify and recognize that this whole idea of finding something grand uh, is in fact in every person. Uh, if they just subtly shifted their attention into their fundamental nature it's, you know I'm trying not to be mystical I want to be practical rather than abstract if uh, you know on a, on a very simplest scale anything alive a human being when they wake up in the morning they are aware so there's this very simple side of the equation which is always present, clear, simple, uh, beingness, I amness, awareness, you can call it all those different things. It's, it's what breathes life into us, so it doesn't have to be mysterious. So there's a point where recognizing that quality in ourselves, just shifting the attention very subtly to, to know that it's there, that's what we are. Um, you know, some people it could be very dramatic, other people could be a very soft understanding, uh, but it's, 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 it's not an, certainly not knowledge, you know, that it's experiential, but it's always here. So shifting the attention from things outside of us, which I include thoughts, feelings, sensations in the body, you know, things that are not our true nature, if they just shift into that, that to me could be construed as an end because it's a discovery of our true nature. We become it. We become our true nature, um, which is always here, unchangeable from anything on the outside. Um, you know, if you want to put this in scientific terms, it could be 
that consciousness recognizes itself even in the brain. The brain starts to change with this introspection. Uh, meditation starts to rewire itself, and science is really showing this lately in the last 10 years. So maybe when the neural patterns shift into just becoming more adept at recognizing our true nature, just like a sculptor or an artist or somebody who really practices at something, they really fundamentally live in that. That could be an end, but the other side of this is the everythingness. And if you take that very literally, um, you know that things are happening in life all the time that test our potential, you know, test our abilities and uh, to me, all that stuff every day reveals mysteries about me that I didn't know about. So when I come into circumstances, you know, generally they're confrontational or they almost exclusively involve other people, groups, whatever setting it is that test me in a way. And I see things about myself that I didn't realize were there, you know, kind of the buzzword today is the shadow stuff you know, that's very deep. Um, that to me is never ending. So there's mysteries about life and mysteries about myself that are ongoing. And does it really affect the true nature? No, that stuff doesn't change what's always here, but uh, it's the two merging to me, the relative and the one, the consciousness that we are, that's the beauty of life. That's the miracle. That's the ever unfolding process. And I hope that doesn't sound lofty or mysterious. I'd really, you know, I'd rather bring it down to practical terms, but um, yeah. So what I would say is it becomes a recognition of what you truly are and what you truly aren't, that's never ending. You know, it's a two-way recognition. And that will continue. And I'm sure there are things about myself <laughs> tomorrow or the next day or the next year that will be revealed that I had no idea were there. So that'll never end till I die. Now you just, you described sitting in the community building and doing a practice of observing, observing your thoughts and really wanting to know the source of those thoughts. And then you, just a moment ago, you mentioned shifting into awareness and how this is, awareness is something that people, uh, each morning when they get, get up, that awareness is there. What, what's the difference between what you were doing your practice of observing and the shifting into awareness are are they the same thing is there some is there something that you that you weren't doing in your normal meditative practice years ago that you recognize now i'm not, I'm not clear on that yeah i i have i've thought about that myself um uh... I can't, 
I can't, I think in retrospect, I can't believe I fooled myself so deeply. Um, so when I was studying my mind, you know, back there in the community building in the years leading up to that, I think there was a, uh, there was a feeling that this awareness was within my control. It felt personal. It felt like I was doing something with it. Um, and it... Hmm. I, I, I feel like I was pushing or, or trying to do something. And I know I'm going to, I'm running, I'm going to run into a paradox here, the whole thing about volition and non-volition, but, um, I was applying myself and I didn't realize I was applying myself to something that was really, the, the technique was keeping me from seeing something so simple and so obvious. So I was, I was distracting myself by feeling like I needed to do something to be realized. Uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really struggling with that question, Sean. Um, because I really do feel there's, there's per, the part of the formula is definitely perseverance. And I don't mean pushing so hard, like sitting in a lotus position and pushing so hard that, you know, there will be some cataclysmic thing that will happen as a result of that effort. It's not exactly cause and effect. Because, and, and because, and the reason that, that makes sense to me is because what we're looking for is always right here, but it's so obvious and so much in plain sight, we can't accept the implications of it being available and accessible all the time. I, I really feel like our whole evolutionary process is designed, like our brain and everything's designed, and this, this isn't a bad thing, it's just designed to be outward focused. So we're looking for threats in the environment, you know, um, you know part, certainly deep programming to reproduce and, and have a family. Um, and it's just not designed to stop and be still with what's always here. So I think there was a second part of that question, like what's, did you say what's different about now versus then? Well, well, yes, I would, I would be curious to, when you mentioned, it sounded like advice to a person these days about shifting into awareness, or, or that's what's required is a shift into awareness. I, I think fundamentally I'm curious about, well, what are, you, what are you suggesting to people as a practice, or do you suggest practices to people these days and how is that different from what you were doing? How is that different from 
sitting and meditating and observing the mind and observing thoughts. It, it sounds to me like there is some difference, yeah. but I don't know what that is. Yeah, because uh, I feel it's like, a, it's like, to use a term Rose used, it's like an umbilical cord, this watching process. Um, the watching to me is... It's building a skill. It's like instead of our attention being directed outward, it's directed inward. And a person can get more skillful at doing that. So it's the watching process that creates a dichotomy. So the dichotomy being what is watched and what is watching so you know there's different terms for the observer the witness the watching process and there's a play play that occurs between those two qualities within ourselves so you know, rose rose employed his teachings employed the reverse vector um the retreat from error and those different words falling away of self backing away from untruth, unknowing, you know, all these are terms used to just, just realize that anything that is viewed is really not the viewer. So it's a, that's the backing away. It's like the falling away of what is, un, what is not truth. And the more a person does that, I feel perhaps, perhaps there's even something going on in the brain where it starts to work this stuff out even in the background maybe you know we're, we're trying we might set aside every teacher i've been around said set aside 30 minutes or an hour a day or whatever time period just to be with yourself let your whole system quiet down and reflect on your what makes you tick you know the thoughts the feelings and so that process, I feel like it allows something to work in the background, uh, even outside of that time period of quiet, in which we're, we're almost, it's almost like a muscle. We're getting better at watching with time. And uh, it doesn't matter what the content is. So many people get caught up in their thoughts and uh, what what tends to happen, I saw this in myself, uh, it tends to get very subtle. And you, you, you can really realize that there is, a, there is a part of you that is trying to manage everything in life. So it's, you know, most people are trying to manage all this stuff in their life outside, thinking that if I just get all this shit in order in my life, I'll be able to be spiritual. The subtle part is then you start to realize I see things, thoughts, I'm, I see thoughts and feelings and things that I'm doing that are quote non-spiritual or things that I don't like and uh, it's actually uh, Puyan Yan who was Rose worked with and there's if you google that that term Puyan Yan on the internet you'll find information about him, um, he had uh, this ego one, ego two play out, and that's what I'm talking about. The, the the manager, 
There's a part of us that thinks I should be doing, thinking, feeling something, and another part that is not doing that, not behaving well, and it's like two aspects of self fighting against each other. That's I'm not talking about that kind of watching, although you can watch those two kind of engage with themselves, but I think that's why I like just the idea of relaxing and letting thoughts arise, letting feelings arise without trying to mess with them, without managing them, especially in meditation. Um, and that includes sensory perceptions, it includes body sensations, just watching and realizing there's a quality of yourself that's always there and everything else comes and goes. Thoughts, feelings, you know, a bird singing, everything comes and goes. That's the relative. Whereas there's something familiar, and I don't mean to be mystical or mad, you know, talk about magic or whatever about this quality, but it's just this fundamental nature in ourself. And uh, I guess that's. In the end, what's realized, you know, we're, we're, we've been watching all this stuff all this time, trying to look for it, and we are it. We can't be anything else. It is everywhere, and it's almost laughable in a way that, my God, I've been looking for this, and here it's been with me the whole time. So I think I tackled your question, but um, yeah, that that. That watching process is really crucial, um, and everybody's going to come at this in a different way. Um, so it it sounds to me to summarize that before your your idea of observation was that you as a that there was an observer quality to you and that you identified with that like that was that was phil phil was the observer of thoughts and feelings he was some sort of neutral stance or neutral place from which he could observe those things yeah and it felt very personal at that point it felt like i was it was contained inside of me it was like I was awareness. I was this piece of awareness, and um, everything else was outside of me. Um, and all the, the the shift that I'm talking about, the subtle shift is there's a realization it's totally impersonal. It's totally within all things. It's everywhere. Um, it's just consciousness, and life is the contact between. Our true nature and the relative you know that's that's what's realized that shift into awareness uh, it's certainly a word that I hear a lot uh, as you know I'm out here in California so we're very much about <laughs> ground zero uh, awareness <laughs> and, and just noticing you know just noticing what's happening and so forth uh, which are catchphrases that I often uh, speak of derisively, as, uh, as somehow people are people are thinking that uh, 
just that just noticing that oh i am i am aware you know i am aware of my thoughts i when i wake up in the morning there's an awareness there and that's who i really am got it okay that makes sense uh is is that what you're talking about or is there do you feel like there is some depth that is being missed in that realization uh, this is something I, I struggle with a lot because there are a lot of teachers who point out how simple this is and how we just overlook what's the most obvious thing and a lot of students who say oh okay yeah I got it I see what you mean is it as simple as that <laughs> I would say that's the start of it that that simple recognition would be the start of start of it. Um, it, and it's really to rest in reality. There would have to be this dual recognition that I mentioned before, which is a recognition of what you are, what you aren't. And this is not a one-off kind of thing. It's not like oh, I got it. I feel you. That, as I mentioned before, like this everythingness process, this unfolding, the unfinished part, is the piece of the puzzle that completes it. And so, you know, my as I as I really tried to to make it clear in my story, there was a settling into this, and there's still a settling into this. Um, deeper aspect of ourselves it's like there's still beliefs there's still some beliefs and concepts and thoughts that captivate me and take me away but um, so if a person sees the obvious that they are awareness but then says okay I can get on with my life if they're not living it then they're not fully seeing their 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 full potential Um, and that full potential is to really settle into the fact that their attention now rests in this true nature or awareness or beingness and much less so in thoughts being swept away in thoughts and um and I, I don't mean to imply like I'm living, you know, the end goal. And maybe this is a case, you know, I'm not uh, this mystery, uh, which I'm convinced would never be solved. But um, there's still a mystery to reality to me. But um, there, there might be a point where a person rests as awareness, unperturbed by, you know, things that arise in life or within thoughts and feelings. Maybe that's the case, um, but I suspect that there's definitely a sliding scale there. So, um, yeah, I think I think if a person really continues to apply themselves and still just go where their natural state is, keep their attention on this deeper nature within ourselves, this stillness, consciousness, um, the the other stuff, what I call noise of the mind. You know, rather than say ego or make labels, but just say noise of the mind, which is a layer on top of an unnecessary layer that would go on through the day, which is 
generally the chatter in our mind, the labeling, the, the blah, blah, blah part of ourselves that's adding these suffering, so to speak. Generally, that's the source of suffering. If it's adding all that stuff through the day, unnecessarily, it's not, there's no value added to the internal chatter, talking to ourselves. Um, they're still being swept away by it. So uh, the more a person just tunes into the broadcast of reality, which is always here, and less and be and they uh, <clears throat> tune less into the static, you know, that's being created by the noise of the mind. Um, I think that's that's the vector, so to speak. That's where things just continue to unfold. So maybe uh, maybe that's a litmus test. There's still a lot of inner chatter, but they feel like they've still they've got it. Well, I say just keep turning the attention to this inner con this this consciousness, which is always there with them or awareness. Is there a danger that that turns into? A quest to perfect the personality or to to become uh, to become something that's perhaps not possible in this world uh, uh, I, I can't tell if if you're describing a an unperturbed being you know who who no matter what comes at them uh, is acts in a saintly manner or acts like the Dalai Lama or something <laughs> like that. Um, you know, and again, I, I admittedly, I have a goal, uh, goal-oriented uh, bias, if you will, in this stuff of just get me to the end so that I'm done so that uh, I don't have to practice anymore and I can just live life. Uh, and be satisfied with whatever comes up. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great way of describing it. Um, uh, I, what I mentioned before about the aversion to self, having these quirky aspects to me and the flaws, the flaws that are um, just part of my character. You know, it's just I was I was raised a certain way. I Grew, grew up in the United States. I have an ethical ba ethnic background. Um, so there's things about me that are very unique, that are very particularized ray of the absolute. Um, and so to answer your question about is there a satisfaction with life, that is what happened rather recently for me that that acceptance of all those qualities of myself smallest self um, and when there is you know the I call it the fear of self or the aversion of self uh, mostly falls away the satisfaction increases dramatically um, so 
maybe <laughs> when you were talking, I was thinking I, I had this word asymptotic pop up into my head, taking me back to my intellectual days where, you know, it's a steep curve of stuff falling away in the beginning, perhaps. And then it just like the curve flattens out, but never really becomes totally flat. You know, just there's still stuff that falls away, but but the the shift is fundamentally into total satisfaction. Uh, I wouldn't say total, but I would say majority of life is satisfying and happy, and uh, less about resisting what happens. Not to say it's pleasant. You know that people can confuse that that life is this this whole state of enlightenment is about a state of pleasantness or bliss or whatever but it's more all the stuff gets thrown at us and then we just react to it in a proper way you know a good example is if somebody punches me in the face uh, I'm not going to be quote a spiritual being with compassion you know, and turn the other cheek. You know, I'm going to have a fight or flight reaction to that. But the the dissatisfaction that would often come after that event would, for most people, would be reflecting on it. What could I have done differently? And they torture themselves with all this chatter going on internally. And it's totally unnecessary. What's necessary is how to react at the time it occurs, but then letting it go you know, to it, and uh, that's the satisfaction that stuff just doesn't stick around as long as it used to. And the people that you interact with in a teaching role, what are the the two or three most common blocks, if you will, that you see to them achieving whatever it is they're after? I think fears and desires are common um, and again I'm trying I don't want to be abstract so you know I remember thinking when I listened to teachers and they talked you know I've heard teachers say I, I have no fears or I have no thoughts fears are going back to what I was saying before like fears of death fears of love fears of like uh, and by love I mean fears of opening up to others kind of closing ourselves off because we're afraid we'll reveal ourselves. Um, fears of life and uh, fears about our own human flaws. So that's a fear. That could be construed as a fear of change. You know, if they, there's, there's fear people want as I said before, they want to control their outer life. They want to control their inner life. So there's there's fears about things changing that are outside of their control. And you could flip that around very easily with desire. There's desires because they're unhappy with current circumstances, so they're trying to change it. The other big big thing is beliefs, um, and this is this is just amazing in retrospect. The beliefs that I had about what I should be doing, what enlightenment was. And to a large degree, teachers perpetuate this these beliefs, whether 
I mean, I accept responsibility for forming the beliefs, but I think the teachers perpetuate beliefs either overtly or totally innocently by talking about the state that they're in. Um, and often I feel like this, what they're talking about is so unique to them. And a good example, a practical example, was somebody who's a total mess, you know, is deeply, deeply suffering. Uh, you know, it's like a, a donkey carrying a hundred pounds of baggage. All this stuff in their lives, their traumas and conditionings and, and just things that they're carrying around with them. If 90 pounds of the hundred pounds were to drop off, they would feel ecstatic. You know, this is like, ah, oh, my God, I'm relieved of those burdens and those things that I had been carrying around, those deep beliefs about stuff. Um, but somebody who was carrying 20 pounds of baggage, you know, I, and I would put myself in that camp in a way, a lot of my baggage was spiritual seeking suffering as opposed to traumas in my childhood or whatnot. But if I lost 10 pounds... Uh, you know, 10 pounds of that 20, then I would be, ah, you know, that's that's better. But so somebody teaching from the standpoint of the first person deeply suffering is going to have a totally different message and convey that. And so then the students or the people listening start to believe that's what it's all about. You know, that, uh, and they start to try to behave in the way the teacher's describing um, they start to expect certain things to happen. So beliefs are an enormous, enormous block. And, and for, that's this process of looking that I mentioned before, the watching. It's not just thoughts and feelings. It's like, what do I believe light, enlightenment is? What, what is this? What is this I'm looking for? You know, and uh, there, there's, I could go on. There's just a lot of things that I expected it to all be and none of it none of it was <laughs> none of it was true or anything I could have even imagined uh, you offer retreats occasionally uh, can you tell me a little bit about what happens at these retreats what are you having dialogues with people or sitting in meditation what what style of retreat do you offer um, I'd say a part, a big part of it is to create an atmosphere of friendship, whether it's the friendship occurs there at the retreat and often does, you know, there's, there's some people know each other, but generally it's a group thrown together and, you know, we're, we're talking eight to 12 people. So it's a small group environment. Um, and that friendship is expressed in a couple of different ways. So uh, what I've gravitated to lately was having large chunks of silent periods for people to reflect inward, but also mixing that up in um, people sharing about themselves in an informal way, like over meals, um, and then also creating space in the retreat for people to share openly with others what they're experiencing and, uh, uh, you know, a big thing for me going back to when I was 20 is what I call rapport. 
So we call this rapport retreats and rapport means in harmony with. That's the way I use it. You know, Richard Rose had a different style of rapport. You know, the Quakers have a, a style of rapport of sitting in silence as a group. Um, our rapport is to be in harmony with our fellows in a very deeper way, very much deeper way than we would in casual conversation. So sitting in silence for a certain period and um, with some guide, you know, some guidance, which I've refined more and more as I as I sit myself. Um, my what I advocate to most people, the, the whether we're sitting in a, in a group or sitting by ourselves, is just to be open to what's happening. You know, I think I'm, I'm certain there's certain uh, styles of meditation going way back uh, for centuries and are even practiced today. I'm not very versed in all those different styles of teachings, but um, this probably is close to, to some of the ones that are common today, but it's very much opening up to what's happening as we sit. So just allowing thoughts, feelings, sounds, other perceptions, body sensations, just let it be, relax, and find out what makes us tick in the hopes that by some accident we'll actually realize this fundamental part of ourselves, which is just always there, this awareness. And I feel like the, the sitting with the same intent, there's something magical about that that magnifies that stillness or that core part of ourselves over the, the mind's noise it somehow like kind of shifts the emphasis into that core nature that awareness over the noise um, so that sitting together as a group we get in harmony with each other we get in harmony more with our smallest self you know if you let thoughts and feelings and stuff go come and go you realize that isn't what you really are. And we can become in harmony with capital S self, our true nature. Um, you know, so that's, that's why we call these rapport retreats. Um, you know, they, um, they open my heart. I really, really just bond with people deeply. I don't, I'm not a teacher. So I don't go in there with the attitude that I have something that you don't. I more more or less facilitate it. It's more like I'm their peers as we as we go through the weekend. Um, yeah, that's kind of the description in a nutshell. It creates a really nice environment, and I hope it uh, when people leave, they continue their friendship and work with each other outside of the retreats and have a sense of community with that you know and something deeper continues to call within after the retreat is over do you give any recommendations after the retreat is over or things that people could do on their own i hope they grab i think people would do well to gravitate to setting aside some time 
you know, I, I think what we do in the retreat carries over very nicely to being alone and setting aside some time every day to do this quiet introspection um, with, again, with the, not with the goal of creating some kind of blissful state or any state. It's the reverse, actually, to just be comfortable with everything that's changing um, in our lives. And I just think probably one thing that I, I'm open to that's happened after some of the retreats is to Skype with people one-on-one. I tend to, uh, I really still dislike being the center of attention. So um, I see, I'm, I really appreciate some people who can teach. You know, they have the gift of gab. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the most boring, monotone, ordinary kind of guy. So for me to get up and be this dynamic speaker um, and deliver these one-two punches to people, that's just not going to happen in a large group. I'm just not going... I, I Probably if I applied myself, I could stumble my way into it and be a bit better at it. But, uh, yeah, I find that... One-on-one conversations, small group retreats, Skyping is where I'm probably especially adept at uh, just working with some people. And again, as a peer, you know, I really emphasize this ordinary quality within us all. We're all on the same playing field, so to speak, when it comes to uh, our true nature and just getting people to simplify. That's the big that's the big message to simplify into the ordinary qualities. Are there any particular books that you recommend these days? I'll, I'll use my shotgun approach, hoping that one of the BBs, I think this is your analogy, that one of the BBs hits somebody. Um, so probably on a, so on a wide spectrum, I would certainly recommend Richard Rose's uh, Psychology, The Observer. And I would recommend people pay particular attention to how he lays out this Jacob's Ladder in there in uh, the body, mind, essence. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's in that book. It might be in the direct mind experience, but the idea of paradox, um, because um, it just... I think what tends to happen in our beliefs is we get latched into one side of the spectrum or another, you know, and, uh, and to give you an example that nothingness versus everythingness, some people can get too hung up on either of those where Rose really conveys in that direct mind experience or maybe psychology observer, this idea of a conciliatory principle and being comfortable with everything in between everythingness and nothingness you know that's a quote from Nisargadatta my life flows between nothingness and everythingness between love and emptiness Um, so those two books are good especially for somebody who's a bit more intellectual you know I would say for somebody who has been on the path for a while I just read just a very ordinary book probably recommending this because it's recent and I just met the guy um, Don Oakley O-A-K-L-E-Y 
Uh, shoot. And it's, I think it's Wake Up Now, and it's the Ten Common Myths of, of Spiritual Seeking. I'm, I'm butchering the title. But uh, he just released it. And why I recommend that is because those that have been on the path for a while don't need any more advice. They, they actually need to undercut all the stuff that they've built up over the years, the beliefs. And uh, that's why he tackles the 10 common myths that people have about spiritual seeking and what it takes to be, quote, enlightened. Um, I certainly love the classics I Am That. I recommend, if anybody has it on their bookshelf, to pull that out about every two or three years and marvel at how much more is revealed. If you really want to gauge your sense of progress on a path, that might be one way to do it. Like pull that off the shelf every two or three years and you'll see stuff in that book that you hadn't seen in the last pass. I find things that, you know, when I experience love, I didn't even see the word love in that book. But once I experienced it, love was weaved all through it. Um, that's just one example. All the TAP Foundation books, and this isn't my marketing hat, but what I like about it is, again, it depersonalizes it. That's the trap we get ourselves into. When somebody finds, they get very much hooked into forming a belief around that teacher and what they're, they're trying to convey, where all those books in TAP Foundation Press are from different teachers, and they all will resonate in different ways with different people and they certainly depersonalize the whole experience of what it is to see reality or be reality. I've lately gravitated to some of the books um, just because of my scientific inclinations. There's some books out on um, kind of what's happening in the brain and uh, shoot I'm not very helpful. I'm actually reading the book now, and I can't remember the title of it. <laughs> but what I like about it is he strips out all the religious qualities of it, the all the mystical sides, and says, you know, these are the things happening in the brain. It's rewiring. Um, yeah, well, if you send me the title ah. later, I can add it to I'll have some show notes okay. with this, and uh, we can just add it in there. Great. Yeah, I can do that. And how about uh, films? That's I don't think that's something I've ever heard you talk much about. Are there any films or videos that you think maybe capture some of the, the feeling that you try to convey? Well, of course, the number one film would be Closer Than Close. <laughs> I've never heard of that. It's very obscure, yes. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, I'm not one to go to the movies for spiritual inclinations, but I do, I, I, all my life I've gravitated to, to, uh, science fiction. There's something about the message carried in some science fiction movies that are, there's, you know, the layers there, one for a large chunk of the audience of entertainment there's a deeper layer about more, uh, yeah, something deeper in life. 
that's carried in the message of science fiction. Um, but I don't really have any specific titles that that I recall. Just lots. I've always loved watching those, even as a teenager. How is your experience of being in relationship with other people changed? Um, especially if 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 it's true that well, there aren't really other people here. <laughs> uh, in a word, dramatically. Oh my gosh, um, it's a little hard to separate natural maturing. So, geez, uh, I think everybody goes through huge changes in how they relate to people. You know, as I said, I'm 53. You think back to when I was 20 and I mentioned how introverted I was and how uncomfortable I was in my own skin. And uh, when I, especially when I'd be around people, um, there's a huge, and I don't want to overplay this word, but there's much, much more compassion. Doesn't mean doesn't mean I tolerate everyone perfectly well. You know, it's like when I get around people that certain personality characteristics that, that rub me. Um, I'm not sitting there feeling this warm compassion for everybody, but there's no doubt that that's flipped into a deeper compassion. I, I just, I take joy in helping people in this, um, spiritual endeavor especially without asking for anything i feel like that's that's a huge key not to ask anything at all in return other than you know a thank you is enough but even rose said don't thank me pass it on that would be my greatest wish too that somebody who's been helped could pass it on so i i i enjoy just doing it without imposing anything on them or or requesting anything from them I am much more open, so I used to hide things about myself. <laughs> I'm laughing because one of the things that came up, I talked about that partying in college, you know, and when I get around Richard Rose, uh, I would uh, always hide the fact, you know, I would never wear a shirt that said Budweiser on it or anything like that to convey that, you know, I liked drinking. Um, so I don't really have anything that private in my life nowadays that I'm not willing to share um, except I won't share it on the internet you know <laughs> obviously but uh, yeah you get me at a tap meeting or in a Skype session and people ask me questions I'm just pretty much fully honest as long as it doesn't get into something like weirdly personal but yeah I'm much more open with people and if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to go about that? Well, come to a tap meeting. <laughs> it seems like I'm putting I'll put a... a link to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, honestly, I am at just about every tap meeting. Um, you know, I'm I'm available by email, but email. Has its, it does have its merits because it causes people, when they're responding back and forth, to really think about it. So it can't be something spontaneous that, that they would say. So they have to do a little bit of introspection. Um, but I find it a bit, 
it's a lot of work for me as well to, to put all my thoughts in, on in the email so skyping is is pretty cool um, that works well and uh, but I guess going back to how they would reach me that's um, there's uh, my website searchwithin.org which is all about making information available from many many different teachings many different finders um, there's a lot of Richard Rose material I have a few essays there but uh, the idea was just to compile information where people can go to as a one-stop shop and hopefully find things that are very rare and hard to find nowadays and uh, yeah my contact information is on there too it's the webmaster address okay and uh, I think this may this may be the last question um, what guides you through life I think I would say there's like a foundation that has been built as a result of spiritual work. Um, there is certainly a gravitation to simplifying in all aspects of my life. So when I see things getting too complex, my, t my reaction is to to simplify and I mean by that my finances you know my my family life my interactions with other people um, even in the spiritual side so simplicity is something I move towards without without getting too carried away with it because you know you can you can get a person can get totally reclusive and oversimplified by just running from life, running from other people. So there's there's a balance there. Um, and you know, this sounds kind of odd, but I would say remembering. The mind has this amazing ability to forget. Um, in a way, I think it wants to forget this simplified true nature and, and just There's discomfort with resting in it. I think that's the nature of the mind and the self. Um, so just just remembering uh, through the day that, and just being with what's here, um, and that that stillness, awareness, just just remembering to go back to that is really important to me. And lastly, yeah what's really become more common in in my day like thoughts that come up is uh, I am I am just completely I'm just completely completely amazed and grateful despite all the blood sweat and tears of life and the spiritual seeking and whatnot um, if I had just gotten out of the way sooner, probably uh, things would have happened more quickly. So despite all the things that have happened in the past, um, the gifts far, far outweigh what has been, you know, some heartache and headache along the way. So, yeah, there's a, there's like this 
more and more tuning into the deep gratitude that's in my life and many different things and realizing how fragile life is just being grateful for everything that we all have and everything that I have thank you Phil oh that's great Sean it was really nice to yeah. have this conversation I've never done it before yeah I appreciate it a lot it took a couple hours of your day and uh I really appreciate it.